That is what happens when you uh, skip Chris's pre-service meeting. <laughs> oh, that's on me. Good morning, church. Man, I see a whole lot of bachelors and single dads this weekend who barely survived up to this point. If you're like me, your children went full Lord of the Flies by about 12 hours into Saturday. I think they are down there currently like doing a weird survival, survivor show-esque game. Pray for the children's workers today, all right? These children have not been supervised for 36 hours in any meaningful sense. No, uh, if you're visiting with us today and you're wondering why the room looks the way it does, it's because our women's retreat is going on right now. It's currently ending out uh, over in Pickneyville, Illinois. Spirit of God is moving in power, uh, and we're hyped, hyped to get our wives back in a couple hours. Uh, but anyway, today, for those of us who are here, we are continuing our series, Gospel Story. I'm so glad you guys are here with us today. We're three weeks into this. We've been talking about kind of the major themes of the Bible, moving from Genesis through Revelation. What is the overarching, unifying story of Scripture, right? So the first week we talked about God as the creator, the reality of the creation, how God made all things, how he sustains all things, how he put order and structure in this universe, that he made the universe good, that he made it with design, that we can infer from that that God's character is good, that he desires good for his creation, i.e. us, right? And then we talked about the reality of sin, the, the reality that this good and perfect creation God made has not just been marred, but been ruined by the sinful rebellion of humanity. Something that we chose, right? Humanity was given the easiest choice in all of reality and existence. That is, are you ready for this one? Eternal perfect bliss or death. And humanity was like, hmm. But what's the death one like? Like, I want to try it out. Uh, and they did. And it went poorly, right? And, and, and we realized like, that that's the reality that we live within, like reality within which we live now. That, that reality as God made it, perfect and good, has been broken and ruined by sin, and unless we stand too much in judgment of uh, the, the, the people who came before us, right? Like, each and every one of us has a heart that loves and chooses sin. We're ruined by it, we're marred by it, it's in our bones, but it's not like we would have done better <laughs> if given the opportunity, right? Like, temptation, sin, these are powerful things. So that's all we've talked about so far. We're in the depressing part of the story. It was all good, and then we ruined it. And it's kind of like, well, wow, that's pretty terrible. But praise be to God, the story doesn't end there. Which, by the way, it could. God could make everything perfect and then see that his creation, the creation he made in his own image, the creation that he set apart, special, that he gave everything to, spat in his face in rebellion and broke and ruined his good creation. And he could be like, Okay, fine, I'm done with you. And snap his fingers and start over. But we worship a God who is not content to allow sin the final say on his good creation. Today we're going to talk about the promises of God. If you guys want to turn your Bibles over to Genesis chapter 15. By the way, if you're here with us today and you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you. First off, we have uh, house Bibles kind of under a lot of the seats. You're welcome to grab one. But Man, we're really passionate about access to God's word here at Emmanuel. So if you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, you can feel free to just snag one of those and take them home. Or talk to our pastors and we'll get you one with larger print 
uh, I'm not even that old, but I can barely read those house Bibles. We worship a God who is not content to allow sin to be the end of the story. He's not, he's not satisfied with that being how this thing goes down. And so what we see in Scripture is that we worship a God who promises that he will fix what sin has broken. This is the basic idea of the promises of God. It's as you read through this book, a big, huge, stinking chunk of it, basically from Genesis 3 into the end of the Old Testament, is, is the story of God promising his people, I will fix this. You broke it, but I will fix it. And these are often called by theologians the covenants of God, but we see these promises, this, this relationship of God to creation, play out through the entirety of the Old Testament of God doing the work of reaching out to sinful, rebellious humanity and saying, I know sin has ruined everything, but I will fix it, I promise, trust me. Trust me. And so we're going to look at one of the perfect exemplars of that, even though it happens multiple times throughout the Old Testament, in Genesis 15. So let's read this text together, and then we'll pray and we'll dig through it, because it's a weird one, but it's good for us. Genesis 15, starting in the first verse, we read this. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. You know it's about to get wild. So he brought these out to him and cut them in half and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly a great terror and a great darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kedamites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Got through all of them. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. 
Father, we ask this morning, as we take a few minutes to sit in your word, that you would be our discipler. Holy Spirit, we need you to clarify this for us. We need you to teach us. Lord, we want to hear from you today. God, I pray for each and every one of us, Lord, regardless of what circumstances have brought us into this space today, God, I pray that you would soften our hearts, you'd open our eyes and open our ears, that we would hear from you today what our hearts actually need that we would be challenged today to see you, see your faithfulness, to see your promises in the midst of our circumstances. We love you, Jesus. We trust you for these things. We pray in your name. Amen. So, weird text, right? I I do like, by the way, that we're in week three of this series and have not gotten out of Genesis yet. I promise we will. Uh, but, but this is a strange text, right? This is not necessarily the kind of story we immediately relate to. There's animals getting cut in half. There's weird floating torches passing around. Like, it's, it's strange. But I actually think there's a lot for us in this text. As I already said, this is kind of an exemplar text of this larger principle that is found throughout the entirety of the Scripture, but, but really prevalent throughout the Old Testament, which is that God meets his people in their doubts, in their fears, in their hurts, and he meets them with his promises. That God is not content to let sin be the final say, but rather he chases after his rebellious and sinful people. He meets us in the mess of our own rebellion, and he makes promises to us. And I think what we're going to see as we dig through this text, kind of pick apart a couple of the historical and cultural pieces to try and clarify it, is simply this truth, beloved of Jesus. The promise of God is as good as accomplished. You can take that one to the bank. The promises of God is as good as accomplished. He's trustworthy. When he tells you something, you can believe it. You can rest in it. And that says something, that speaks into our circumstances here and now. It does powerfully. It points us to the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of God, the person and the work of Jesus, right? That there is nothing in this world, no circumstance, no experience we have that is more powerful than the word of God. His word creates reality, right? There was nothing, then there was something because God spoke. So when he speaks to you and says something is going to happen, you can trust it, beloved. You can trust the word of God. Now here's what I think is interesting about that. I think what's interesting about that is that for many of us, that immediately triggers distrust, right? We go, he makes promises. He, he meets us in our hurts and our doubts with promises, many of us, because of our own experience in this life, associate the kind of person who makes promises with the kind of person who is pretty much bent on not keeping said promises, right? I'd rather see actions. I want to encourage you, church, as we dig into this text, to just consider this. Do not allow your experience of sinful, rebellious, broken relationship to paint and tint your experience of your God. He is not like that. He is not untrustworthy. He's not a liar. He's truthful. He's powerful. His promise is as good as accomplished. You can trust his word. You can trust what he says about you, about reality. It will come to be. 
He's, he's, he's worthy of your trust, your consideration. So let's dig through this text. We're going to kind of work our way through it. And it's going to lead us to a couple encouragements. And the New Testament will reflect on the person of Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises of God. And then we're going to talk about some of the, some of the difference between the cosmic promises of God and our spe- specific details of our life. And I think that'll kind of land us out in a beneficial way. So we're in Genesis 15, kind of stepping into the next, we've been in Genesis 1 through 4, kind of these, these first couple of weeks, kind of the creation narrative, the beginning of sin, how things are set up. But Genesis 15 gets us square into the chunk of Genesis that tells the story of the patriarchs, the first like the first kind of forefathers of the faith that lead to where we are now. This is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons, that whole deal. This begins in Genesis chapter 12, when God appears in a vision to a man named Abram. And he gives him some instructions and some promises. He says, hey, you don't know me, but I'm God, so you need to leave. Leave your family, leave your land, leave everything you know. Travel off into the wilderness. I will show you a new place. I will bless you a ton, like physically, financially, all those things. I'll give you a bajillion offspring, and I will give you the land I'm sending you to. Abram hears that and goes, sounds like a pretty sick deal. And so he wanders off in obedience to God. Genesis 12 through 14 tells the story of the next several years of Abram's life. He wanders from where he, where he grew up in Ur to the land of Canaan, where our story takes place now. And we see some of the fruit of God's blessing in Abram's life. Everything Abram touches turns to gold. By the time our text picks up, he's wealthy on a scale that doesn't translate well to the way we think about the world. And you can understand that by reading Genesis 14, when Abram's nephew is kidnapped in the midst of a war between four warring nations, small nations, kind of like city-state nations, but Four warring kings with standing armies, and Abram, a single dude, raises up a private army that defeats the entirety of what's going on, rescues his nephew, and brings back tons more wealth. This is the scale at which Abram's like, like financial blessing exists. He's able to conquer kings, right? And yet when our text picks up, we find Abram in a place of fear and doubt. This is several years into Abram believing God, following him in faith, radical faith, abandoning his family, his home, and wandering off into another place, right? Following after God in obedience. But Genesis 15 picks up with Abram in a place of fear and doubt. And this whole text, by the way, we're told is a vision that he receives from God. God appears to him in a vision and he says, Abram, don't be afraid. I am your shield. I am your reward. It will be very great. These are beautiful words. But in context, I think we need to sit with them for a second. What does Abram have to be afraid of? Right? His life has been pretty great up to this point. He said yes to God in faith. He he stepped out and he's insanely wealthy. He has every comfort you can imagine in life. He has the, the ability to conquer kings with his private security guard force, right? Like, this dude's doing all right. But God appears to him and says, don't be afraid, Abram. What is the fear? I think what we see in this text is that the fear is in God's delay 
in fulfilling his promises. Maybe he made a mistake in following this God. I mean, he's old and he has no heir. Remember, the promise of God wasn't just, hey, follow me and I'll make you wealthy. It was follow me and I will bless you and I'll bless you so much that I'll bless the entire world through you and you'll have a bajillion descendants and I'll give you an entire nation as an inheritance. Now it's however many years later and he's stinking rich, but he has no kids. He has no land. He's a wanderer. And so there's fear creeping into his life. Have I made a terrible mistake? Abram wants his life and his faith in following God, his yes that he gave to God, to be more than just his own life. He's looking at this, at kind of the, the second half of his life, like past middle age, right? And he sees all of this, his story, his faith, his wealth, all these things, ending with himself. And that just makes it all matter less to him. He left his family, left his home. He followed God into the wilderness. And God's promises have not come to fruition. He has no son. His blessing does not extend beyond himself and his own life. And so for the first time in Genesis 15, we see Abram talking back to God instead of simply receiving his command. Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. God is so gracious, by the way, with Abram and his fear and his doubt. God does not berate him. Rather, he graciously, and I would say by the whole, the whole of this text, right, like reaching out to Abram in a vision, he proactively engages Abram's fear and Abram's doubt. But what is God's solution to Abram's problem? I think this is so interesting. It's a promise. God gives a promise in response to Abram's fear. And by the way, it's the same promise he's already given Abram. He's simply restating what he's already told him several times over the years. You'll have tons of descendants. I'll give you the land that I've led you to. This will be, this will be amazing, right? And then there's this, there's this really beautiful scene in the piece where he, he, in the vision, he leads Abram outside and invites him to look up at the night sky and count the stars, right? It's kind of this, this poetic scene. And by the way, we're not talking about St. Louis County night sky. Get out of here. This is zero light pollution. You can like count the dots in the Milky Way sort of deal, right? Just count them if you can. Your descendants will be just as numerous. This beautiful picture. He re-ups his promise. And let's be honest. For just a second. This promise is ludicrous. Abram is old. His wife is old. They are past childbearing years and they're childless. How could they possibly have offspring as numerous as the stars, right? But God meets Abram and all he does is reaffirm the promise. I said what I said, Abram, and I mean it. And Abram believes him. I love this picture. God meets Abram in his grace and just tells him the same thing he's already told him. This is the promise I gave you, man. I'll do it. And that, for whatever reason, in the face of his present circumstances, in the face of his doubts, that is enough for Abram. 
He believes God. That's a powerful moment that we'll come back to today. But, but, but I want to take just a quick beat here and invite you to consider this. Abram believing God did not get him immediately what he wanted. Right? Abram believing God in that moment did not change his circumstances. It didn't force God to immediately act on what he said. And by the way, Abram believing God did not magically make his doubt and his fear go away. It simply was him making a choice in the moment how to respond to his doubt and his fear. He's still in the same place. His circumstances haven't changed, but God in his grace reminds him of his promise and that is somehow enough. It's enough. Brings Abram to a place of faith. But God takes it a step further. At this point in the vision, God initiates a covenant and he obligates himself to Abram. By the way, he could easily just lean on his status as, oh, I don't know, God. I said it. Stop questioning me, right? Like, that is my go-to parenting strategy half the time. And it's just not terribly, like, fruitful in terms of how it works. God graciously chases after Abram. He steps into the mess, and he puts himself into an obligation with Abram. This is wild to consider if you think about this for a moment. The creator God of the universe, Yahweh, whose voice creates reality, signs a contract with a human, right? He obligates himself to a finite, sinful creature. Let's talk about covenant for a second. This is a term a biblical term essentially for a solemn and official agreement made between two parties. Similar to how we use the term contract uh, with some distinct differences that I think are actually important for us. The most important difference, I know there's a billion types of contracts, and so those of you who work in business world can probably pick that piece apart, but the piece that's really important when you're thinking about a biblical covenant is this. A covenant is binding regardless of how faithful the parties are to the agreement. A contract oftentimes can be nullified by parties failing to meet the minimum requirements of it. A covenant can stipulate consequences if parties fail to uphold one side, but the covenant itself is not invalidated. If you make an agreement to do something within a covenant, you are bound to do it, regardless of what the other party does, regardless of what the consequences of them doing or not doing. You've made the agreement. You must do it. Parties are held to their commitments, which makes it, I think, that much more intense that the God of the universe is making a covenant with this guy, right? He's obligating himself to Abram, a finite, sinful human. And we're introduced to this strange ceremony. God asks Abram to kill and cut up several animals. This is this kind of ancient piece that's sometimes associated, connected with covenants. It's called a blood path. The animals are killed. They're split in half with their gore and viscera kind of in the middle, in the mud. I know it's very gross. Uh, But it creates this bloody path. And each party of the covenant then walks through the path between the pieces and says something to the effect of, if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant, let me be like these animals. It's pretty intense. I had to do something really similar when I signed my mortgage originally. Uh, I'm just kidding. (laughs) In this vision, Abram sets up the blood path, and then suddenly, or I guess not suddenly, kind of at the end of the day because it sits all day, but, but the next piece of this is this terrible darkness 
overtakes him, which is kind of a strange part of the story. But I actually think this is really kind of like, yeah, who could blame Abram for this immediate fear and despair coming upon him? He's being asked to make a covenant with the holy and righteous God of the universe and walk a blood path in front of the holy and righteous God of the universe to to walk in faith and obedience to this God, right? That's pretty intense. Who would not be slightly intimidated at that invitation, right? Who could possibly perfectly uphold a covenant with a perfect God? Now, I stinking love this part. God, in his grace, doesn't even make Abram walk the blood path. You see this? Instead, God walks it twice. He floats it twice, I guess, because he manifests himself in the form. That is what happens when you uh, skip Chris's pre-service meeting. (laughs) Oh, that's on me. Good morning, church. Man, I see a whole lot of bachelors and single dads this weekend who barely survived up to this point. If you're like me, your children went full Lord of the Flies by about 12 hours into Saturday. I think they are down there currently like doing a weird survival, survivor show-esque game. Pray for the children's workers today, all right? These children have not been supervised for 36 hours in any meaningful sense. No, uh, if you're visiting with us today and you're wondering why the room looks the way it does, it's because our women's retreat is going on right now. It's currently ending out. Uh, over in Pickneyville, Illinois, Spirit of God is moving in power, uh, and we're hyped, hyped to get our wives back in a couple hours. Uh, but anyway, today, for those of us who are here, we are continuing our series, Gospel Story. I'm so glad you guys are here with us today. We're three weeks into this. We've been talking about kind of the major themes of the Bible, moving from Genesis through Revelation, what is the overarching unifying story of scripture, right? So the first week we talked about God as the creator, the reality of the creation, how God made all things, how he sustains all things, how he put order and structure in this universe, that he made the universe good, that he made it with design, that that we can infer from that, that God's character is good, that he desires good for his creation, i.e. us, right? And then we talked about the reality of sin, the the, the reality that this good and perfect creation God made has not just been marred, but been ruined by the sinful rebellion of humanity. Something that we chose, right? Humanity was given the easiest choice in all of reality and existence. That is, are you ready for this one? Eternal perfect bliss or death. And humanity was like, hmm. But what's the death one like? Like, I want to try it out. Uh, and they did. And it went poorly, right? And, and, and we realized, like, that that's the reality that we live within, like, reality within which we live now. That, that reality as God made it, perfect and good, has been broken and ruined by sin. And unless we stand too much in judgment of uh, the, 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 the people who came before us, right? Like, each and every one of us has a heart that loves and chooses sin. We're ruined by it. We're marred by it. It's in our bones. But it's not like we would have done better <laughs> if given the opportunity, right? Like temptation, sin, these are powerful things. So that's all we've talked about so far. We're in the depressing part of the story. It was all good, and then we ruined it. And it's kind of like, well, wow, that's 
pretty terrible. But praise be to God, the story doesn't end there. Which, by the way, it could. God could make everything perfect and then see that his creation, the creation he made in his own image, the creation that he set apart, special, that he gave everything to, spat in his face in rebellion and broke and ruined his good creation. And he could be like, okay, fine, I'm done with you. And snap his fingers and start over. But we worship a God who is not content to allow sin the final say on his good creation. Today we're going to talk about the promises of God. If you guys want to turn your Bibles over to Genesis chapter 15. By the way, if you're here with us today and you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you. First off, we have uh, house Bibles kind of under a lot of the seats. You're welcome to grab one. But man, we're really passionate about access to God's word here at Emmanuel. So if you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, you can feel free to just snag one of those and take them home. Or talk to our pastors and we'll get you one with larger print uh, I'm not even that old, but I can barely read those house Bibles. We worship a God who is not content to allow sin to be the end of the story. He's not not satisfied with that being how this thing goes down. And so what we see in Scripture is that we worship a God who promises that he will fix what sin has broken. This is the basic idea of the promises of God. As you read through this book, a big, huge, stinking chunk of it, basically from Genesis 3 into the end of the Old Testament, is, is the story of God promising his people, I will fix this. You broke it, but I will fix it. And these are often called by theologians the covenants of God, but we see these promises, this, this relationship of God to creation play out through the entirety of the Old Testament of God doing the work of reaching out to sinful, rebellious humanity and saying, I know sin has ruined everything, but I will fix it. I promise. Trust me. Trust me. And so we're going to look at one of the perfect exemplars of that, even though it happens multiple times throughout the Old Testament, in Genesis 15. So let's read this text together, and then we'll pray and we'll dig through it, because it's a weird one, but it's good for us. Genesis 15, starting in the first verse, we read this. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. You know it's about to go wild. So he brought these out to him and cut them in half and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away as the sun was setting A deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly a great terror and a great darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, 
Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kedamites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Got through all of them. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we ask this morning, as we take a few minutes to sit in your word, that you would be our discipler. Holy Spirit, we need you to clarify this for us. We need you to teach us. Lord, we want to hear from you today. God, I pray for each and every one of us, Lord, regardless of what circumstances have brought us into this space today, God, I pray that you would soften our hearts, you'd open our eyes and open our ears, that we would hear from you today what our hearts actually need, that we would be challenged today to see you, see your faithfulness, to see your promises in the midst of our circumstances. We love you, Jesus. We trust you for these things. We pray in your name. Amen. So, Weird text, right? I, I do like, by the way, that we're in week three of this series and have not gotten out of Genesis yet. I promise we will. Uh, but, but this is a strange text, right? This is not necessarily the kind of story we immediately relate to. There's animals getting cut in half. There's weird floating torches passing around. Like, it's, it's strange. But I actually think there's a lot for us in this text. As I already said, this is kind of an exemplar text of this larger principle that is found throughout the entirety of the scripture, but but really prevalent throughout the Old Testament, which is that God meets his people in their doubts, in their fears, in their hurts, and he meets them with his promises. That God is not content to let sin be the final say, but rather he chases after his rebellious and sinful people. He meets us in the mess of our own rebellion, and he makes promises to us. And I think what we're going to see as we dig through this text, kind of pick apart a couple of the historical and cultural pieces to try and clarify it, is simply this truth, beloved of Jesus. The promise of God is as good as accomplished. You can take that one to the bank. The promises of God is as good as accomplished. He's trustworthy. When he tells you something, you can believe it. You can rest in it. And that says something, that speaks into our circumstances here and now. It does powerfully. It points us to the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of God, the person and the work of Jesus, right? That there is nothing in this world, no circumstance, no experience we have that is more powerful than the word of God. His word creates reality, right? There was nothing, then there was something because God spoke. So when he speaks to you and says something is going to happen, you can trust it, beloved. You can trust the word of God. Now here's what I think is interesting about that. 
I think what's interesting about that is that for many of us, that immediately triggers distrust, right? We go, he makes promises. He, he meets us in our hurts and our doubts with promises. Many of us, because of our own experience in this life, associate the kind of person who makes promises with the kind of person who is pretty much bent on not keeping said promises, right? But I'd rather see actions. I want to encourage you, church, as we dig into this text, to just consider this. Do not allow your experience of sinful, rebellious, broken relationship to paint and tint your experience of your God. Because he's not like that. He is not untrustworthy. He's not a liar. He's truthful. He's powerful. His promise is as good as accomplished. You can trust his word. You can trust what he says about you, about reality. It will come to be. He's, he's, tr- he's worthy of your trust, your consideration. So, Let's dig through this text. We're going to kind of work our way through it. And it's going to lead us to a couple encouragements. And the New Testament will reflect on the person of Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises of God. And then we're going to talk about some of the, some of the difference between the cosmic promises of God and our spe- specific details of our life. And I think that'll kind of land us out in a beneficial way. So we're in Genesis 15, kind of stepping into the next. We've been in Genesis 1 through 4, kind of these, these first couple of weeks kind of the creation narrative, the beginning of sin, how things are set up. But Genesis 15 gets us square into the chunk of Genesis that tells the story of the patriarchs. The first, like the first kind of forefathers of the faith that lead to where we are now. This is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons, that whole deal. This begins in Genesis chapter 12, when God appears in a vision to a man named Abram. And he gives him some instructions and some promises. He says, hey, you don't know me, but I'm God, so you need to leave, leave your family, leave your land, leave everything you know, travel off into the wilderness, I will show you a new place, I will bless you a ton, like physically, financially, all those things, I'll give you a bajillion offspring, and I will give you the land I'm sending you to. Abram hears that and goes, sounds like a pretty sick deal, and so he wanders off in obedience to God. Genesis 12 through 14 tells the story of the next several years of Abram's life. He wanders from where he, where he grew up in Ur to the land of Canaan, where our story takes place now. And we see some of the fruit of God's blessing in Abram's life. Everything Abram touches turns to gold. By the time our text picks up, he's wealthy on a scale that doesn't translate well to the way we think about the world. And you can understand that by reading Genesis 14, when Abram's nephew is kidnapped in the midst of a war between four warring nations, small nations, kind of like city-state nations, but four warring kings with standing armies. And Abram, a single dude, raises up a private army that defeats the entirety of what's going on, rescues his nephew, and brings back tons more wealth. This is the scale at which Abram's like, like financial blessing exists. He's able to conquer kings, right? And yet when our text picks up, we find Abram in a place of fear and doubt. This is several years into Abram believing God, following him in faith, radical faith, abandoning his family, his home, and wandering off into another place, right? Following after God in obedience. But Genesis 15 picks up with Abram in a place of fear and doubt. And this whole text, by the way, we're told is a vision. 
that he receives from God. God appears to him in a vision and he says, Abram, don't be afraid. I am your shield. I am your reward. It will be very great. These are beautiful words. But in context, I think we need to sit with them for a second. What does Abram have to be afraid of? Right? His life has been pretty great up to this point. He said yes to God in faith. He, he stepped out and he's insanely wealthy. He has every comfort you can imagine in life. He has the, the ability to conquer kings with his private security guard force, right? Like this dude's doing all right. But God appears to him and says, don't be afraid, Abram. What is the fear? I think what we see in this text is that the fear is in God's delay in fulfilling his promises. Maybe he made a mistake in following this God. I mean, he's old and he has no heir. Remember, the promise of God wasn't just, hey, follow me and I'll make you wealthy. It was follow me and I will bless you and I'll bless you so much that I'll bless the entire world through you and you'll have a bajillion descendants and I'll give you an entire nation as an inheritance. Now it's however many years later and he's stinking rich, but he has no kids. He has no land. He's a wanderer. And so there's fear creeping into his life. And I made a terrible mistake. Abram wants his life and his faith in following God, his yes that he gave to God, to be more than just his own life. He's looking at this, at kind of the, the second half of his life, like past middle age, right? And he sees all of this, his story, his faith, his wealth, all these things, ending with himself. And that just makes it all matter less to him. He left his family, left his home. He followed God into the wilderness. And God's promises have not come to fruition. He has no son. His blessing does not extend beyond himself and his own life. And so for the first time in Genesis 15, we see Abram talking back to God instead of simply receiving his command. Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. God is so gracious, by the way, with Abram and his fear and his doubt. God does not berate him. Rather, he graciously, and I would say by the whole, the whole of this text, right, like reaching out to Abram in a vision, he proactively engages Abram's fear and Abram's doubt. But what is God's solution to Abram's problem? I think this is so interesting. It's a promise. God gives a promise in response to Abram's fear. And by the way, it's the same promise he's already given Abram. He's simply restating what he's already told him several times over the years. You'll have tons of descendants. I'll give you the land that I've led you to. This will be, this will be amazing, right? And then there's this, there's this really beautiful scene in the piece where he, he, in the vision, he leads Abram outside and invites him to look up at the night sky and count the stars, right? It's kind of this, this poetic scene. And by the way, we're not talking about St. Louis County night sky. Get out of here. This is zero light pollution. You can like count the dots in the Milky Way sort of deal, right? Just count them if you can. Your descendants will be just as numerous. 
This beautiful picture. He re-ups his promise. And let's be honest for just a second. This promise is ludicrous. Abram is old. His wife is old. They are past childbearing years and they're childless. How could they possibly have offspring as numerous as the stars, right? But God meets Abram and all he does is reaffirm the promise. I said what I said, Abram, and I mean it. And Abram believes him. I love this picture. God meets Abram in his grace and just tells him the same thing he's already told him. This is the promise I gave you, man. I'll do it. And that, for whatever reason, in the face of his present circumstances, in the face of his doubts, that is enough for Abram. He believes God. That's a powerful moment that we'll come back to today. But, but, but I want to take just a quick beat here and invite you to consider this. Abram believing God did not get him immediately what he wanted. Right? Abram believing God in that moment did not change his circumstances. It didn't force God to immediately act on what he said. And by the way, Abram believing God did not magically make his doubt and his fear go away. It simply was him making a choice in the moment how to respond to his doubt and his fear. He's still in the same place. His circumstances haven't changed, but God in his grace reminds him of his promise and that is somehow enough. It's enough. Brings Abram to a place of faith. But God takes it a step further. At this point in the vision, God initiates a covenant and he obligates himself to Abram. By the way, he could easily just lean on his status as, oh, I don't know, God. I said it. Stop questioning me, right? Like, that is my go-to parenting strategy half the time. And it's just not terribly, like, fruitful in terms of how it works. God graciously chases after Abram. He steps into the mess and he puts himself into an obligation with Abram. This is wild to consider if you think about this for a moment. The creator God of the universe, Yahweh, whose voice creates reality, signs a contract with a human, right? He obligates himself to a finite, sinful creature. Let's talk about covenant for a second. This is a term a biblical term essentially for a solemn and official agreement made between two parties. Similar to how we use the term contract uh, with some distinct differences that I think are actually important for us. The most important difference, I know there's a billion types of contracts, and so those of you who work in business world can probably pick that piece apart, but the piece that's really important when you're thinking about a biblical covenant is this. A covenant is binding regardless of how faithful the parties are to the agreement. A contract oftentimes can be nullified by parties failing to meet the minimum requirements of it. A covenant can stipulate consequences if parties fail to uphold one side, but the covenant itself is not invalidated. If you make an agreement to do something within a covenant, you are bound to do it, regardless of what the other party does, regardless of what the consequences of them doing or not doing. You've made the agreement. You must do it. Parties are held to their commitments, which makes it, I think, that much more intense that the God of the universe is making a covenant with this guy. 
right? He's obligating himself to Abram, a finite, sinful human. And we're introduced to this strange ceremony. God asks Abram to kill and cut up several animals. This is this kind of ancient piece that's sometimes associated, connected with covenants. It's called a blood path. The animals are killed. They're split in half with their gore and viscera kind of in the middle, in the mud. I know it's very gross. Uh, But it creates this bloody path. And each party of the covenant then walks through the path between the pieces and says something to the effect of, if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant, let me be like these animals. It's pretty intense. I had to do something really similar when I signed my mortgage originally. Uh, I'm just kidding. (laughs) In this vision, Abram sets up the blood path and then suddenly, or I guess not suddenly, kind of at the end of the day because it sits all day, but, but the next piece of this is this terrible darkness overtakes him, which is kind of a strange part of the story. But I actually think this is really kind of like, yeah, who could blame Abram for this immediate fear and despair coming upon him? He's being asked to make a covenant with the holy and righteous God of the universe and walk a blood path in front of the holy and righteous God of the universe to to walk in faith and obedience to this God, right? That's pretty intense. Who would not be slightly intimidated (laughs) at that invitation, right? Who could possibly perfectly uphold a covenant with a perfect God? Now, I stinking love this part. God, in his grace, doesn't even make Abram walk the blood path. You see this? Instead, God walks it twice. He floats it twice, I guess, because he manifests himself in the form of this smoking, this this pot with like incense smoke coming out of it and this flaming torch. By the way, if that's weird imagery for you, you have to remember something. This is just a real quick, just mental note for you guys to to, to remember that the, the scripture tells a unifying story. One of the main facets of this particular text is that God is prophesying the future of Israel to Abram hundreds of years before it happens, right? He's speaking directly in this prophecy about what will happen in the Exodus when Israel is enslaved in Egypt and how God will will speak to the prophet Moses and free his people and initiate another covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. And if you recall your Sunday school history, when God is leading the people out of Israel across the Red Sea to Mount Sinai to engage in another covenant with them, how does he lead them? In the form of a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire, right? The same God, same God making the covenant with Abram is the same God making the covenant at Sinai, the smoke and the fire. And God passes through the blood path twice, essentially saying, if I fail to uphold my covenant, I'll become like this. If you fail to uphold the covenant, I'll become like this. Taking, taking both sides of the obligation. I love that piece. You see the fear, the anxiety on Abram considering how grand and impossible a thing he's being asked to do to uphold a covenant with a holy and righteous God. And God in his grace gets ahead of it and just says, look, man, this covenant's basically just, it's basically just unilateral. I'm going to do it. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to do what I said. Not only am I going to do what I said, I'm going to obligate myself to it. Not only am I going to obligate myself to it, I'm going to obligate myself to your future failure of this covenant. I'll take it. I'll do what I said. 
And I'll take the potential punishment on myself for your failure to uphold. Dang. What a God. What, 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 what grand promises this God makes. God will not only fulfill his end, he will take the punishment earned by Abram's potential, or we'll say eventual failure. What a God. And by the way, this is the model for the rest of the Old Testament. Humans choose sin, we choose rebellion, we run away from God, we're broken, we're bent towards sin. There's, there's no world where sin is not deep in the bones of humanity. The curse has ruined us. We are born into sin. And yet God continually steps down into the mess, steps down into the muck, steps down into the pain and the suffering, and promises his people that he will ultimately fix it. Exodus 20, God makes a covenant through the prophet Moses with Israel at Sinai. 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant through the prophet Nathan with the king David that he will sustain his reign. Ezekiel 36, God, through the prophet Ezekiel, promises a new covenant where the laws of God will be written on the heart and there's no way for us to break the covenant because he puts the truth within us. We see this throughout the story of the Old Testament. What we ultimately see is that as we saw last week, sin kills, sin separates. But every time it does, we find God right there promising to fix what is broken by sin, meeting us in the mess and the pain and the suffering created by sin. And here's the thing, beloved. God is not full of hot air. He's not just words and promises. The word of God is powerful. It creates reality. Our God is a God of action. All the Old Testament, we see God promising something better. A real solution to sin. A real solution to the rebellion inherent in the human heart. This promise, beloved, is perfectly fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The story of the Old Testament is the story of the fact that human beings can't keep their end of the covenant. They can't do it. Every chance God gives them, it doesn't matter. Sin has ruined us. Sin has ruined us. Born into sin, conceived in brokenness. It's in your DNA, it's in your bones. For all the beautiful, amazing things people can do in this life, we still have hearts bent toward evil. And if God were to hand us the scales and just say, live a life, live a righteous life, earn earn eternity, we just can't do it. We can't. Of hearts that are too broken, Hearts that love rebellion and sin too much. But God, in his grace, fulfills the covenant himself. He passed through twice. He takes the punishment on himself. He enters into this world in human form as the man Jesus. He lives a perfect life that we couldn't live. Actually earns salvation. Think about that. Think about your own life, right? Think about the ways that you turn to the same sins. Think of the ways that your heart is bent toward trying to downplay sins and pretend it's not that big a deal. Jesus Christ earned his salvation, earned eternity, experienced every temptation we experienced and rejected them, lived a perfect life. And then, in fulfillment of his obligation, took on the punishment earned by sin allowed himself to be bloodied and broken, allowed himself to be punished for our failure to 
live holy and righteous lives. God of the universe sacrifice himself for us, makes a way for us to move from death to life, makes a way, comes along, you know, we're given this, this insanely easy deal, right? Perfect eternal bliss or death. And we go, hmm, how about death? I want to try that one just to see. And Jesus comes along and just says, that was a, that was a terrible idea. <laughs> Tell you what, I'll take that and I'll give you my righteous reward. That was a bad decision. You shouldn't have done that. I'll take that back. You take my righteous reward. You go back to eternal perfection. That's what you're built for. I'm stealing Jin's sermon for next week. But we have to see this piece to fully understand the promises of God. The promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. We can't do our text justice today without sitting for a moment in how plainly this text and every promise in Scripture points to Jesus. Jesus is where the whole thing is going from Genesis 3 to the very end of the Old Testament. The promise and the movement is always towards God's Messiah taking on the sin punishment and making a way for God's people to be in perfect relationship with him again. In the opening of his second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul says this about God's promises. I love this. This is starting in verse 19. For the Son of God, that is Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanius, Timothy, and I, did not become yes or no. On the contrary, in him, it is always yes. For every one of God's promises is yes in Jesus. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God, beloved. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. Our God keeps his promises in the most wonderful of ways. Most wonderful of ways. Today, we have Genesis 15, a picture of the faithful promise of God. So what do we do with this, right? Again, I'm not trying to steal Jim's thunder for next week, talking about the personal work of Jesus. So I think there's actually a really important distinction we need to make when we look at a text like Genesis 15 and we consider the promises of God. Beloved, the promises of God are as good as accomplished. You can always trust the word of God is true. This doesn't just apply to ancient Jewish patriarchs receiving prophecies of the coming Messiah. This is as true for us as followers of Jesus as it was for them. Hebrews 11, in this, that famous section kind of known as the Hall of Faith, the author walks through generation after generation of the followers of God in the Old Testament who received his promises in faith, even though they didn't get to see the fruition of the promises. Verse 13 of Hebrews 11 says this, these all died, referring to all these, all these folk in the Old Testament, died in faith, although they had not received the things they were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners, temporary residents on this earth. Abram was promised the land of Canaan and descendants like the stars. But he didn't see them in his life. At the end of his life, he had a couple of kids, and the only property he owned in Canaan was a field he bought with his own money to bury his dead wife. But Abram believed God. As Hebrews 11 says, he knew the promise was bigger than just him and just his life. He trusted God to fulfill that promise in perfect timing, and beloved, what a fulfillment it was. 
The descendant of Abram was none other than Jesus himself. The son of Eve who stomped on the skull of the serpent and killed it. Who blessed all creation through his accomplished work on our behalf. See, I think this is where we miss this whole thing for us as Christians here today. In this life, there are all sorts of ways that we feel stuck. Feel like our wheels are spinning when it comes to God's provision and his promises. I'm not so naive to not believe that many of us in a room like this right now are sitting in the midst of difficult circumstances, stuck in the waiting, wondering where God's promises and God's blessings are. I know many of us can sit in a room today and resonate with Abram's fear and seeming doubts of God's goodness. Proverbs 13 says an unmet desire can make the heart grow sick, can poison the heart. Many of us know exactly what that feels like. You feel like you said yes to God. You feel like you took a step of faith, but it hasn't played out like you thought it would. A job didn't come through. A relationship fell apart. The other person wouldn't reconcile. The school said no to you. There's so many ways we can find ourselves in similar places to Abram. I'm just going, I stepped out in faith. I did the thing I thought you told me to do. I put myself out there and it isn't working out like I thought it would. It's way harder. It's taking too long. It's not bearing fruit like I thought it would. Beloved, the promises of God are as good as accomplished. But I need you to hear this. I think this is important for a lot of us today. The promises of God are also much bigger than we give them credit. God didn't solve Abram's immediate fears. And Abram died not seeing the full fulfillment of the promise. And yet, and yet, the word of God was still enough for him. So what does this actually mean for us today? And here's the question that I think many of us simply don't want to ask because we don't want to consider the answer. The question is this, beloved, what has God actually promised to you? What is it he's actually offered to you? Beloved, Jesus has already defeated sin on the cross. That's already accomplished. You can have salvation and freedom in him today, here, now. The promise that stands for you is what happens next. Beloved, Jesus will return one day and restore all things. Every bit of pain and suffering and fear and anxiety and evil will cease to exist. The thing in your life, that wound that feels so painful right now, that hurt, that that unmet desire that makes you doubt God's goodness and fear his delay in giving you good. I need you to hear this if you're in Christ. I promise you that will not matter to you 13 trillion years from now. When you've been living in perfect unity with with the lover of your soul, with your Savior, for trillions upon trillions of years in perfection, you will not care. It will not wound you. It will not hurt you the way it hurts you now. Beloved, that is the kind of scale within which your God considers you. Not that he is indifferent to your suffering and your hurts now. No, he loves you. He sees you. He hurts with you, even in small things. Beloved, God wants to know the real desire of your heart. He wants to hear what's hurting you, what's, what's making you struggle here and now, what you desire 
here and now. But the reality is that often, often, God's answer to your hurt, your doubt, your fear right now will be an answer that is cosmic in scale. Oftentimes, God's immediate answer to our fear and our hurt is, trust me, I will fix this. Trust me, I will make this better. Because the reality, beloved, the thing that many of us just don't want to acknowledge is that your desires, your deep desires, the ones that you think can be solved by the right job, the right amount of money, the right relationship, the right vacation, the right education, the right fill in the blank. Beloved, the real desires of your heart, hear this, cannot be fulfilled in this sinful and broken world. The deep needs of your heart that you think will be fixed by you just having a life here on this earth the way you've designed it in your head won't get you there. Nothing on this earth can fully satisfy the human heart. Your heart needs heaven and it needs Jesus and it needs salvation. That is what you truly long for. The the thing that you think will fix you right now, it's fine. You should tell God about those things. God cares about you, cares about the minutia of your life. But you must know, you must know that is not what will satisfy you. And your God has bigger good in mind for you. I've told this story before, but it's funny, so I'll share it again. When Millie was a couple years younger than she is now, there was a day when she went out and did errands with me. And she was so well behaved, and she just was like, it was, she was younger and like had a harder time doing this stuff. But she went out with me to a billion different places and was just really well behaved and big helper and this and that. And so I just decided in my head, like, our last stop was at Walmart, and we very rarely go to Walmart. But I was like, I'm going to buy her a toy. I'm going to get her something just a little like... Thanks for helping me out today, girl. So we get to Walmart and we're walking around and she just hit that point that children hit. You know what I'm talking about. The point that just says, I'm done. I've behaved for you for a full hour and 45 minutes. No more. No more. And she fell apart inside Walmart. And it went like this. Every 10 feet, she would grab something off a shelf and go, Dad, will you buy this for me? Didn't matter what it was. Halloween decorations, toothpaste. Like, she'd pick it up and go, I want this. I'm not getting you that. And she'd just, you know, freak out and go into this complete meltdown because she wanted tartar control toothpaste or whatever it is, right? And the whole time I'm going, we're just here to get you a toy. <laughs> the only reason we're still in this store is because I'm buying you a toy, but they're in the back of the store. You know, I'm like getting increasingly frustrated as we, and I keep going, baby girl, I got something better for you. Put that back. I got some, I promise I got something better for you. And she just wasn't, like, wasn't there wasn't there, right? What she wanted was this toothpaste. She wanted it right stinking now. She didn't, I don't know if she'd been in Walmart at that point in her life. She didn't know there's a toy aisle in the back, right? Like, she doesn't know that's where we're heading. Beloved, I know that's a silly story, but, but, but I, I grab a hold of that for this reason. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with wanting good for your life now, wanting joyful, fulfilling relationships, wanting freedom and movement and wanting to see your dreams come true, wanting to see career paths. All, those are beautiful things. Nothing wrong with them. Tell God about them. He loves you. He loves you in the minutia of your life. But I will tell you this. The best things this life has to offer, the absolute best that life on a sinful, broken earth has to offer is not enough for you. You are made in the image of the Most High God. You are made for eternity. 
You are a precious creature, important to the Lord. He built you forever. There's nothing in this 70-year sinful broken lifespan that can fulfill what you were built for. So when you bring your real fears, when you bring your real concerns, when you bring your real doubts to the Lord, and he responds to you with a cosmically scaled answer, trust me, I will fix this. Beloved, you can trust that. That speaks truth over your life here and now. Your circumstances may not change. They may not get better. You may not get the thing you want in this life. You may not. You may not. But God is good. God has good in mind for you. God has greater good in mind for you. You don't need the things of this world. You need heaven. You need Jesus. And beloved, those things are available to you. 2 Peter 3 says this, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. (laughs) With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord does not delay his promises as some understand delay, but rather he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but wanting all to come to repentance. This is speaking of Jesus' ultimate return and restoration of all things, but don't miss how this is connected to your life right here and right now. Beloved, all of our frustrations are ultimately us calling out to God to fix the reality of sin in our lives and our world. Every desire we bring to the Lord ultimately at its core, is us saying, God, it shouldn't be this way. God, this is painful. God, this is unfair. God, this is unjust. Will will you please fix it? And beloved, he will. He will. God is not slow to fulfill his promises. He just has better timing than you. And to be honest, church, he has better priorities than you. So you can trust him. You can trust him. His timing. Chris, you want to come back up? As we land out today, I want to ask you to take a minute in your thought and your prayer and your response to this. I want you to take a minute and I want you to consider the faith of Abram. I want you to consider the kind of faith that believes God's good heart for you even when your circumstances don't seem to line up correctly. Beloved, the promises of God matter. They speak to the deepest parts of the human heart. And beyond this, the promises of God are made by a God whose actions, whose track record show his heart. He chases after us when we run away in sin. The promises made by a God who when you go back and you look, he's completely trustworthy. He actually keeps his word to his people. The promises of God, beloved, are as good as accomplished. So you, today, here, now, regardless of the circumstance that is creating suffering, fear, anxiety from you, you can trust the heart of God for you. He's good. He wants what's best for you. Believe him. Believe he is who he says he is believe his heart for you is as good as it appears to be you can do that church and again it may not fix that thing right in front of you I promise you it will put you in a whole different posture as you experience it and you endure it take a few minutes consider the faith of Abraham consider the goodness of God for you 
then we're going to end our time with communion. Father, give us faith. For all of us in this room, Lord, regardless of where we are at in our journey with you, considering you still, considering your promises, considering the gospel, having followed you for years or decades or anywhere in the middle, Lord, give us faith. We want to trust you. We want to believe your word is true. And we know in our head, we know you're trustworthy. We know you do what you say. It's so easy to forget. In the mess of this life, in the tangle of our own sin and our own fear, the struggles of this life in this world, it's just so easy to forget. God, give us faith. Faith to trust you, faith to believe you, Lord. As we await the fulfillment of your promises, we want to be a people who, like, like those who've come before us, hear your word and hear your promise and not just believe it, but are satisfied. trust you, Jesus. So we pray these things in your name.